Welcome to the Chicago Real Estate Perspective with Dave Nimick, the podcast where we work with real estate enthusiasts, sharing the unfiltered truth and the reality of real estate. Now our host, Dave. Hi, it's Dave Nimick. Thanks for tuning in to the Chicago Real Estate Perspective, formerly known as Putting the Real in Real Estate. This episode is about how to be best prepared for buying a home in 2023. First step is to be prepared. You want to think about it as kind of knowledge versus ignorance. Number one, you want to know your runway. That's time until you're going to purchase a home. Now, you often have to do kind of math backwards. So if you want to close on a home in three months, you have to remember that the normal kind of contract to close period is 45 days, and you're not sure when you're going to find this home that you love. So you have to build in that amount of time. So bottom line, you want to allow enough time. Generally, three to four months is a comfort level. Less than that is getting a little tight. More than that, you may get started a little bit early, but that's roughly the amount of time. Also, you want to think about how long you're planning on owning it, like what your estimated timeline of ownership is. Reason I say that is if you're only planning on owning a home for a year and a half, two years, I recommend you don't do it and you just... (laughs) you hold off. But if you're going to hold it longer than that, then you're definitely going to give yourself a higher likelihood, at least, of seeing some appreciation over the long haul. Step number two is getting pre-approved. And bottom line, just knowing your finances. Now, this is often said in the biz as P-I-T-I or P-I-T-I-A. And what that stands for is principal, interest, taxes, insurance, and then the A that's sometimes added to the end is for assessment if it's going to be a condo. So things that you want to pay attention to are debt to income ratio. When you go for a pre-approval, you're going to hear this term quite a bit. What that means is how much of your total income is going to go towards your housing and the PITIA, all of those things, principal interest, taxes, insurance, et cetera. And you want to make sure, and banks certainly look at this when they're loaning people money, that it stays below like a 50% threshold. Generally, the comfort level is around 40% of the total income. And then as borrowers, generally, the way we look at things is how much you're going to be paying per month, right? And interest rates certainly play into this. It costs more to borrow money as the interest rates go up. But nonetheless, you want to go through, and it's good if you have specific properties that may be of interest to plug those actual numbers in, the actual taxes, the actual other loan terms. And then if it's a condo, you plug in the assessments and then you figure out what your monthly payment's going to be because you do not want to be eating cat food, even if you can afford to do so or afford to buy a more expensive home. You'd want to be house rich and cash poor where literally you have no money to do anything else with, right? So you want to figure out and use calculators, online calculators, Carl's mortgage calculator, Carl with a K, is one that I've found is always a very good one to use. It's kind of no nonsense, very straightforward. I don't think it has any ads in there that I remember. So that's a good one to use. But plug those numbers in and your lender certainly will go through this. They're going to be asking you, okay, they're going to ask you what your income is, what other expenses you have, long-term loans, that type of thing and try to figure out what your comfort level is. You're probably going to say, well, I'm comfortable paying X amount per month. And then they'll essentially 
tell you, okay, well, that will probably give you about this price point of home that you can expect to get. So that's going to be what that process is. But I will tell you, you do want to go through this process ahead of time. Biggest reason, although there are many of them, and it's kind of boring, admittedly. I mean, I work with great lenders, but going through the process and putting all your finances together may not be the most exciting thing you ever do, but you'll be glad that you did it. You only need to really do it once, get all that information together. But the most important time or the reason why it's so important is when you're going through and actually looking at homes and you see the place that you really like, you don't want to be encumbered by, oh, I need to go get a pre-approval which may take hours or days and you don't know in any market there can be multiple offers obviously we're coming off a market where they were happening all the time and you want to be 100 percent prepared so being pre-approved really gives you a solid concrete understanding of how much you can afford based on certain interest rates plus you're prepared like you are ready if you want to write an offer you can do so at the exact moment that you want to write an offer as opposed to having to wait to write one, right? Now, also with getting pre-approved, even after you've gotten pre-approved, as a sideline, I do not recommend trying to quote unquote, time the market, which means, okay, I think rates are going to go a little bit lower. Like you can do that and you can always wait, but usually it just means someone never buys. If you do happen to get it lower than the rates end up being after that, then that's great. You, you're fortunate and lucky. If you happen to buy it higher and the rates go down after that, well, guess what? There is kind of a built-in benefit if it goes down a substantial amount is that you can just refinance. Several decades of ownership, I've done that several times. So that's a, a benefit right there. And if you get the, kind of the going rate, which most people do, that's pretty much going to be the norm that you should expect. Step number three is choosing the right agent. So if you're going through the process and you're going to be buying this year, have you already chosen one? And if so, how did you meet them? It is always best to meet an agent by referral. There are numerous reasons why, and it's not just in real estate that you should work by referral, but definitely when it's as important a decision as real estate is you want to do it. But if you did not, you want to make sure that you think about how you did. And bottom line, I won't go into a whole diatribe. I have all other episodes about this, but you must be able to trust this person without a second thought. Bottom line, whoever it is and however you met them, you need to be able to trust the agent without even having to think about it or worry about it, right? If you have not chosen, then you want to find an agent that offers what I'm about to go through and you do not want to settle for less, period, okay? So first thing is negotiating skills. Most people are very nice, most agents, but when it comes down to really getting to it and showing their teeth, are they able to do that? Some agents are, some agents aren't. But they also, as needed, if you're negotiating or if there are several offers, the agent also needs to be able to play nicely in the sandbox, meaning they need to emphasize the benefits of your offer, but they also need to make sure that they're getting along well with the other agent as needed. Bottom line, they need to have all those tools in their tool belt to be able to do it. You want to think about how an agent is going to make your life easier, not more challenging, right? You also want to have an agent that knows the process backwards and forwards. And this often speaks to just overall experience and knowledge level without question. But some people have done it for quite some time and still don't really understand the process. You want to make sure you're totally comfortable that they pretty much can anticipate anything that might happen. You want to think about their disposition and attitude. Is it someone you actually like talking with, right? Do they also have empathy? Do they kind of get you and do they tend to listen when you've talked? 
are they going to focus on your needs or do they think about kind of how your transaction is going to help them look good on social, you know, that type of thing? The agent's knowledge level. And this has to do not only, like I said, with the process, but also with the areas of interest. You may be looking at one or several areas that you might want to buy in and you want to make sure that they have comfort level in all of those things. Or if you're working with someone who is outside of the normal area, do they know agents? You know, if you're looking to go out into the suburbs, potentially, do they have contacts for other agents they might be able to refer, right? Communication style and frequency. Is this someone you think you may not hear from much or that you'll be hearing from regularly and is really going to be paying attention to you? Level of honesty. This goes back to the trust factor, right? Plus, honesty is something that I use where in addition to them just speaking the truth, it's also like if someone needs to say something that you may not want to hear, but you need to hear in order to get to the next process in your decision, that's up to you whether you want to have someone that way. But generally, that's how I work with clients. And it's the type of thing where afterwards, they're thankful, as numerous clients have told me, that I did say something. Even if they didn't want to hear it at the time, they knew they needed to hear it right? Does this agent have a proven level of service? Like, are they wow? Do they wow clients? Or are they pretty good? Or are they just, eh? you know, that is super important as far as a level of service, because you're the one they're going to be serving, right? And then when it comes down to the overall level of experience, think about it similar to a pilot flying a plane or a surgeon that's going to be doing a life-saving operation. And you've probably heard me use this analogy about Sully Sullenberger, the pilot who landed the plane on the Hudson River, he had 30 years of experience and the dude knew what he was talking about. Would you rather have him flying that plane or someone that just passed the pilot's test? I think I know the answer. Or if you're going for life or death surgery, do you want some intern or do you want someone who's been doing it 35 years, who's steady handed and has done the surgery thousands of times? I know the answer to that as well. So bottom line, you want someone that's going to provide value in all these different ways and that you can trust without even having to think about it, period. So step number four is learning and understanding the process. And I'm going to go through that now. So a lot of times I talk about needs versus wants or overall prioritizing. So let's talk through those first. Needs are essentially what would be called deal killers. That is like, if I don't have this, I'm not doing it. It could be a parking space. It could be a third bedroom. It could be whatever. That's up to you what the deal killer is. But you know that you're just not going to buy a place, period, end of story, unless it has X number of things or whatever those things are. I don't recommend you have a list of eight or nine things on this list because you're probably never going to buy a place. But generally, most people have two or three different things that they know they want and they're not willing to settle for less, right? Other than that, wants, those are the nice to haves where certainly people want to put their quote unquote wants in the needs list, but is it something that's absolutely mandatory or is it something where, well, I'd really like to have that parking space, but I probably don't absolutely need it. The street parking is pretty easy, that type of thing. Then you want to put that in the want list. You want to have those two separate lists and be honest with yourself about them. Certainly pay attention and talk to an agent as far as what you'd really like to have. And also you can talk about what doesn't matter to you. So that doesn't need to be part of the discussion at all. So now we'll go through kind of how to prioritize your list. Okay. And this is also personal to you, but generally it exists for just about every buyer looking for a home. And 
First one is location, location, location. Yes, you've heard that before. What gets baked into location, though, is kind of the area amenities. What's out your door? So it's not even inside the home, but what is around the home, right? Is it walkable? Does it have proximity to the lake, highways, public transportation? Although that's not as much of a need per se as it was before the pandemic, but still obviously important. Uh, Grocery stores, restaurants, retail, nightlife, all of that, right? Then inside the home, Certainly natural light. If you like natural light, which most people do, then that's something to pay consideration towards. Work from home options. Obviously, that those have always been important, but in the past 12 years, with so many more people doing that now, it's vital almost. Uh, functionality versus just strict square footage. And one of my largest pet peeves in my now 23rd year in real estate is that our MLS doesn't require square footage measurements. So sometimes you see it, if you do, it can be a vague number, you know, kind of a round number or whatever, or you don't see anything at all. Don't include or exclude any home just based on what it says for square footage. Just don't put it in as a search criteria. What you want to do is look at the photos because if the home can function the way that you want and need it to, then the square footage, well, it does matter certainly and the larger square footage is always better. But if the home meets your needs. You don't want to have eliminated it or maybe never seen it come through in your search because you put in a square footage measurement. Okay. Also outdoor space, quality of construction, or, you know, additionally like signs of deterioration or water damage or anything else where things are just looking kind of run down noise concerns. And then for condo specifically, the location certainly of the building then the health of the association. So is it well-run association? Do they have enough in reserves, which are the kind of the savings account for the building? What amenities does the building offer specifically? And then what specific benefits and drawbacks? Because when you're buying a condo within a building, there's usually pluses and minuses of that unit within the building itself, right? So another totally separate aspect is the speed of the market, okay? And this... (laughs) We've had evidence of all different aspects of this over the past, I'd say, four or five years, and certainly a very strong seller's market over the past couple of years. Nonetheless, it's you know supply and demand, economics 101, right? Supply is the homes for sale or available inventory, and the demand is the buyers buying for those homes, and that's your competition, right? And regarding the speed of the market, the market is always based on one thing. But that one thing is driven by many different forces. What is that one thing you ask? Urgency. Oftentimes, one or the other side is urgent. Who is feeling urgency? Why are they urgent? And will that urgency become stronger or weaker as the weeks and months go on? Right. And along those lines, who has the upper hand? And is that upper hand going to last? Is it going to switch? These are questions that can't always be answered but certainly are a part of the speed of the market and the overall process. And there are some questions that I often get asked actually. So I'll go through some of those. How long does the process normally take? I get asked quite a bit. And my answer is as long as it needs to, but it's usually, to be honest, less time than people think it is, right? And the way I talk about it is that the process is kind of shaped like a a standard funnel where upfront buyers, set the widest net where they're going to be able to see the most potential homes, right? 
So they set the widest number of neighborhoods or, you know, they just have the, the most criteria allowed so they can see as many homes as possible. Then they kind of whittle it down and maybe even after just looking at the homes online or maybe after they've gone out for the first time and looked at several homes in, in different areas or with uh, different parameters, then they kind of become more specific and they shrink their criteria to something that's, that is more specific to exactly what they think they're looking for. Then, and literally that process continues down where they decide, you know what, I really don't like this neighborhood or I don't like this type of home. And they shrink it down to where they have a very specific, small, but very spot on type of search for their exact home. And when a home comes up, like a new one comes in that meets all of that criteria, then buyers that I've worked with certainly tend to act lightning quick because it meets all of the criteria that they've whittled down to these very specific small criteria, right? Another question is, when's the best time to buy? And my answer invariably is always the same. It's when the time is best for you, okay? It's not what other friends are saying. It's not what the media is saying. It's not the estimated direction of interest rates or what month it is or whether it's a recession. It is literally, is it the right time for you and you alone to buy? Looking back, people are always concerned about, oh, did I make a good decision? Did I make a bad decision? And the reality is when you're making the decision, you don't know how it's going to be looking back at it down the road. You just want to feel comfortable making that decision because it's right for you. You can afford it. You like the home. It meets a lot of your needs and it's going to work for you for the foreseeable future. Those are the reasons why. So what anyone else says, honestly, doesn't matter unless they're part of the purchase. Their opinion should certainly be secondary to your own. There's a question that first-time buyers often ask, which is, should I wait? Should I buy? You know, I don't really know. And we as humans always kind of default to the status quo unless we're motivated to do otherwise. But generally, if you're used to renting, or you're do used to doing whatever, most people, unless really pushed to do something else, will often just default to, well, I'll just rent for another year, right? And we as humans, I think by nature do that. But I don't necessarily recommend that you listen to that voice. It doesn't mean you automatically buy, but you look at things objectively. Is now the right time to buy? It is not expected, this is early January, that prices are going to jump up enormously this coming year. I don't expect that they're going to be falling necessarily by enormous amounts either, but it is something where you want to pay attention to, okay, am I going to like this? Is this affordable right now? Rates, we don't know where they're going to go. They could go up a little bit more. They could go down a little bit. Hopefully they do. The reality is, is be comfortable making this decision and saying, okay, I'm happy with this. Because generally when people are comfortable and grounded in that decision, they rarely, if ever, regret it later. Okay. Now, renting versus zoning. This is another question that first-time buyers suggest. And I'm not going to tell you whether you should continue renting or not. But I know that many reports are saying that Chicago is among the strongest rental markets in the nation with rents continuing to rise. And one report from Realtor.com said that Chicago had the highest growth last year and is expected to stay on that path. So as far as renting, that is likely to continue to be challenging with rents going up. Okay. So final thing about this is whether to own or not, if you're a first-time buyer or you haven't owned yet, there are studies done year in and year out pretty much. And 
from what I've seen every time, the overall wealth of people that own a home versus those that have never owned a home is about 40 times over. Okay. So it's a 40x return for those wealth-wise that have owned a home versus those that have not. So you kind of, at some point, whether this is the year or a year down the road, you do want to plan on being a homeowner for your own wealth reasons. Number five is how best to view homes. And there are different ways to do it, of course. Some people think that open houses are the best way to do it. And prior episode, uh, more than one have talked about how open houses are used mainly by the agent who's working the open house to try to meet unrepresented buyers. So if you have not chosen an agent to work with and you're going to see a home in an open house, just remember that you are the bait that the agent is going after. Okay. They're going to target you in order to get you to work with them. So just have that in the back of your mind when you're going to look at an open house. It's not just you looking at a home. That's what's going on behind the scenes. That said, you can go and take a look. It is kind of a, you know, an easy way to take a look at some homes and just kind of like check things out. But I don't recommend that you buy a home based on what you've seen in open houses. But you can use it also if you are working with an agent and your agent happens to be out of town that weekend, whatever, and you know you want to see it, then of course, right? But if you're getting close to making a decision and you're using the open house as the way to come to a decision, the fact that there may be other people at the open house may drive you to put in an offer or offer more than you need to just because you're physically seeing someone else in the house. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to feel that sense of urgency. So as you're getting super close to making an offer, I don't recommend that you use open house as the be all and end all. Okay. Now, what I do recommend is that you view homes with your agent, right? Now, this is the way most people do it. And there is no downside. You have someone that's looking out for your best interest and no one else's, unless they also happen to be the listing agent, which you're kind of playing with fire. It is legally allowed. But bottom line, if you're there with your agent, then you have someone representing your best interest that hopefully has met all the criteria we talked about a little bit earlier, and there's no downside to it. Another way that does not include you having an agent is you contacting the listing agent, meaning the agent representing the seller on your own. Okay. You are definitely playing with fire if you do this, because if you do like it, then you will not have any representation. No one will be looking out for your best interest. And guess what? The listing agent is probably going to make double their commission for not looking out for your best interests. So I don't recommend you going down that avenue. Okay. Another is you can call for sale by owners. We call FISBOs in the business. That's essentially just as bad, except marginally even worse because neither you nor the seller have any representation at all. And you both are taking on essentially all the liability that could potentially exist in a real estate transaction because neither of you know what's going on. So I don't recommend you do that. Work with an agent that you trust that's going to look out for your best interests, period. The sixth and final point has to do with after you've been maybe on the market looking at homes for a little bit, even just a matter of some days or a week, but maybe not the day that you you know, start looking in earnest. Nonetheless, you want to be ready to act because if you see a place that meets all of your standards, especially if you've narrowed down your standards to very specific ones, then you need to be willing to act. And if you're going to make an offer on a place, there's one magical question that you need to ask. And there's only one question 
that will always answer the question, right? And that is, would I or we be upset if someone else got this home? It's a very simple question. If the answer to that question is no, I wouldn't care, then right, who cares? Move on. But if the answer is yes, I would be upset if someone else got this home, then don't pass co, don't collect $200, act immediately, go write an offer that day. Thanks for listening. This is Dave Nimick, and tune in for another episode of the Chicago Real Estate Perspective. Thank you for listening to the Chicago Real Estate Perspective with Dave Nimick. Make sure to subscribe and follow so you don't miss an episode. You can find our guest contact information and real estate resources in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Chicago Real Estate Perspective.